In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. If you got a kid in preschool right now, if you're listening to this near a kid in preschool, first off, thanks for helping the CBC get a younger demographic. Much appreciated. We could use it. But there's also a good chance that the person you're with will recognize the voice of Ron Pardo. Because Ron Pardo, a Canadian, by the way, stars in one of the top movies in North America right now. Not Barbie. It's not Oppenheimer. It's not the new Exorcist. Oh, it's way bigger than that. It's Paw Patrol. I can't stand those little mongrels. I can't stand the Paw Patrol either. That's what makes us such perfect roommates. Yeah, but don't get too attached. As soon as I can find my way out of here, I'm going to get my meteor back. That is a clip from Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. I'll tell you this, I don't don't have kids, but you don't really need to have kids to recognize that Paw Patrol, which, by the way, is originally from Canada, is one of the most popular anythings in the world right now. Paw Patrol is the biggest thing since Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, since SpongeBob SquarePants, since Fruit by the Foot. And as I mentioned, a Canadian, Ron Pardo, is the voice of Mayor Humdinger and Captain Turbot in Paw Patrol. That was his voice or one of the voices you heard just then. Before that, check out this. Ron was a school teacher who was always good at voices and impressions. In fact, he does a lot of them in our interview today. But he, and you might relate to this, felt himself getting a little bit older and wanted to take a a risk. And in this case, it really paid off. Ron joined me over Zoom with his very fancy voiceover and mic setup, though he seemed to be behind like a blanket from Cambridge, Ontario. Ron, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, Tom, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. It's about time you had me on. <laughs> I love that's how you exactly. That's exactly what Mayor Humdinger would say. Uh, that's like, that's exactly how Mayor Humdinger would react to being introduced on Q. That's right. I think the show should be called H for Humdinger. <laughs> do you ever do you ever bust that out when kids are around? Yes, all the time because uh, they're so young that they don't understand quite the abstract of uh, anyone doing a cartoon voice. But when they hear it, yes, they definitely react. When did you become aware that this show that you had signed up for became this major cultural phenomenon? Well, it's like all voice actors go through. Uh, you just want to get auditions and you want the you want the chance to work. So uh, when I got the audition in 2012 to do Captain Turbot and Mayor Humdinger, I just auditioned like I do for every role. And you have no idea how the show is going to work. You love every show. You love every role you do. You're grateful for everything. But when you start getting season three, Season four, season five, you go, okay, here we go. (laughs) I don't know how to thank you, Ryder. Uh, Really, I don't. (laughs) You're welcome, Mayor. Whenever you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yell for help. 
How did you yeah. how did you come up with the voice? Of Humdinger? Yeah. Well, as an impressionist, that's how I I wouldn't have done any of this if I couldn't do impressions. Because so I did a stand-up act for seven years back in the 90s, up till the year 2000 or so, and I, it was all based on impressions. So when I got into the voice world, I started combining impressions together to come up with voices. If, if the description of the character in the audition breakdown said, whiny, greedy, narcissistic, well, then my initial reaction of whiny was Jack Benny. Oh, Don, oh, oh, Don, come in here, that kind of thing. And of course, when I was young, I'd watch Rich Little on Ed Sullivan. And the Impressionists were always my favorite, Frank Gorshin, George Kirby. They were just great. So I threw that into one director's note of maybe a Snidely Whiplash, which was from the Dudley Do-Right franchise. Snidely Whiplash was voiced by the great Hans Conried. And he was like, Dudley Do-Right? What are you doing? Like, more like that. So I combined the two, and over the time, over the, over the series, as it went on, it developed into more. And then the voice director would say, more whiny. The producer would say, whinier, please. So I'd go even more. And it would just get, it grew and grew and became, you know, I could do it any time. And of course, he can get really sneaky and down here, too. So it just developed a life of its own. When, when did you realize there was something special about your voice? Were you, were you doing this as a kid? Yeah. Yeah, I, a big cartoon fan when I was a kid. I would read the credits when they came on. And I'd be, you know, seven or eight. And I'd wait till the end of the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner hour. And I'd see... Voice characterizations, one guy, Mel Blanc. I went, what? <laughs> That's unbelievable. And of course, June Foray, too, who did voices well into her 90s. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, the first impression I did, I think, as a kid was probably the Roadrunner, you know, beep, beep, like that. Then I got into, as I got older and my voice changed, I could do a Bugs Bunny, Doc, and it got into all that stuff. Then Daffy Duck and Sylvester and... And in my stand-up act, when I brought my guitar into it back in the early 90s, when Eric Clapton had his Unplugged album, and uh, Layla was the big hit on there, of course, his nice slow version of Layla. Layla got me on I did that as Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, the Roadrunner, Marvin the Martian, Sylvester the Cat, Elmer Fudd, and I did I did Layla on stage, and that that was my closer for a few years, and then it became my opener because I wrote more bits, and yeah. So, do you remember? I don't know. I know you don't have your guitar with you. Do you remember any of that, Layla? Ding, 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 ding. No, just kidding. Uh, Porky Pig would start out. What what will you do when you get lonely? Nobody waiting by your side. And then and then in the chorus I'd go, <laughs> way <laughs> And that was the big payoff, Waywa. So <laughs> I think I ruined that song for a lot of people. <laughs> and including me, including me right now. Now hold on. Before we get to the to the stand-up comedy side of things, you were an elementary school teacher for a while. I'm trying to imagine you as an elementary school teacher in front of the classroom trying to get the attention of a bunch of kids. Did you did you do voices for them too? When I first started teaching, it was nineteen eighty-three and I taught for twelve years. And uh yeah, I do voices. Uh for example, I ran the intramural program, so I go on the announcements as Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
and say, Blue House is going to play Red House today. Be there. You know. And uh, so, and I do voices. When I read aloud to the kids, I'd, you know, do various voices for them. And But when I was uh, teaching grade seven in 1993 or so, I thought, I'm in my mid-30s. And if I don't do something with these voices, I'm going to regret it. That's when I started doing stand-up comedy. In and around Toronto. Like, was that in the era of, was, uh, the era of like, Jim Carrey and Norm MacDonald and those guys? Yes. Yes, I was just after that. I remember watching Saturday, Saturday Night Live and seeing Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman do their impressions. And I thought, I can do those. I, I can do those voices. Not at that level. Not at that level of performance, of course. But I thought, I got to start somewhere. So I figured the stand-up stage locally in uh, Waterloo had a Yuck Yucks. So I went there and I did Amateur Night for a few months. And then I entered the their search for Canada's Funniest New Comic contest. And I won in Waterloo. And then 10 of us from around the country went to Toronto in September of 1994. And I won. Wewa was the closer. And then I just started getting gigs. I took a two-year sabbatical from teaching, did stand-up for a while. And then I got on History Bites, which looked at history through the lens of if television had been around all, all along. And uh, there I got to do more of a Saturday night, Saturday night Live format where I got to do my impressions in full full dress and makeup. Who, like, like well, I didn't see that History Bites show. I remember it being on TV, though, now that I think about it. Like, what, what, kind, of, what kind of impressions were you doing that? Like, historical impressions? Well, yes, uh, historical content, but through the lens of TV shows that were on at the time. Like, for example, Regis Philbin would do Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He was around that time. And uh, I got to do shows like... Uh, who wants to be a patrician? <laughs> and then some some poor guy would be on there trying to earn his way out of slavery or something, you know, or indentured servitude. And it was, uh, and I got to do David Letterman um, interviewing Nero, let's say. Uh, here now, the top 10 signs your emperor uh, may be a lunatic. <laughs> so, um, Brilliant writing, brilliant cast on that show. Janet Vandergraaf, Teresa Pavlinek, Bob Bainborough. See, all along I was new to everything, and those people just taught me so much about how to perform. So I learned a lot from watching them. It must have felt like such a risk leaving such a safe job like teaching and, and, and stepping into the world of showbiz. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And like I said, I never would have done it without the ability to do impressions. That's what I hid behind. Like I wasn't a stand-up per se. I wasn't like a Norm Macdonald or, a, you know, Derek Edwards here in Canada. I wasn't like that. I, I was in awe of those guys. I, uh, I had to hide behind the impressions. My show was therefore very structured with sound cues, music cues. So I was more like a one-hour variety act, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So when, when, the, when the Paw Patrol job came your way, I know that the life of a voice actor is not always in – not always an easy one. I've also talked to voice actors who have, who have spoken to me about as more and more celebrities get into uh, the voice acting world and more and more celebrities are cast. There's less room for, for, for you know, more traditional voice actors. Um, getting this Paw Patrol gig, you know, it, it must have felt like um, a great gift. Oh, for sure. For sure. So I'm, so, I'm just filled with a lots, of, lots of gratitude for everybody involved in the, in the whole machine from like without... Without the script writers, without the artists, without the creators, the producers, voice directors, every just everybody involved, I wouldn't have a job. And I'm grateful for that. 
Are there any theories you have about why Paw Patrol, this little computer animated show from Canada, ended up becoming this global sensation? Well, the characters are so cute, the pups, and they all work together. It's, It's teamwork. There's no favorites. They just all work together to take care of villains like Humdinger, who they always forgive (laughs) and uh, who doesn't cause too much mayhem, but, you know, enough. So I think it's just a a, a really, a really, just, just an inclusive group that work together to solve problems. What do you love about playing the bad guy, the villain in the show? Well, everybody likes to visit that part of their psyche that they would, well, at least maybe um, imagine what it would be like to be that way. You know, narcissistic, whiny, impulsive, greedy. And it's nice to be the person that everybody wants to get kind of thing in, in, a, in the cartoon world, I mean. Well, before we go, I was reading in your, your biography that you're from Pardo, Pardoville, Pardoville, Pardo. Ontario. Pardoville, Ontario, small farming community just south of Chatham. Right on the lake, right on Lake Erie, between Blenheim and Dealtown, if that helps you. Hold on. Well, the thing that's striking to me, that's, <laughs> like, that's like me being from a town called like Powerville or something like, like, like Powertown or something like that. Was everybody in the town related to you? Well, it was, a, it was more of a bunch of farms strung together that, you know, over the years, uh, like our farm has been in the family since 1838. So before that, there was my great-grandfather, a great-great-grandfather, and it goes back. So for, I would say for a couple of miles along Highway 3 there, Talbot Trail, almost every farm was a Pardo farm. So they were all related, you know, brothers, uncles, cousins, things like that. So that's why it was called Pardoville. Well, let me ask you this. If Mayor Humdinger was running for mayor of Pardoville, what would his platform be? Well, I think everybody should visit Pardo Villa Acres Farm Market and Bakery. That was my parents' business for 30 years, and now my sister and her husband are running it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Um, I think we can get away with that on the CBC because it was Mayor Humdinger who, who did it. Uh, Ron, uh, thank you so much for being here, uh, and, and, and you've made so many of the kids on the show so happy over the years, and, and thanks for making the time for us today. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been my pleasure. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. All right, I'm going to play a, a new song, but in order to do that, I got to play an older one. Take a listen. Don't go back to So that's um, the singer Laurel. And I remember I was walking around. I try to do this thing where I walk around my neighborhood in Toronto with this playlist I make of like new Canadian music. And I just try, even if I don't know it, I just try to listen to it, make sure I'm 
keeping up on what's going on in the country and, and trying to find artists and songs that you might like to hear uh, on cue. And I remember listening to that and I thought it was the like some of the best pop music I had heard out of this country in so long. And I was so excited that it was coming out of Alberta, like Medicine Hat, Alberta. So I dug into Laurel's story a little bit. It's a pretty fascinating story. She was, uh, She's the daughter of a hockey coach that moved around a lot, found a home in Medicine Hat, Alberta. For years, she competed as a professional gymnast, and then she retired. By the way, she retired when she was 16 years old. She switched to music. And then for a couple of years now, she's been one of the pop songwriters and pop artists that, like I said, I've been most impressed by in this country right now. Laurel has just released her debut album. It's called Delayed Reaction. And I'm so happy to say she sat down with me to talk about her path to music, to talk about gymnastics, about the weird connection between professional athleticism and professional music, and to preview a song from the record. How are you? Hello. Hi, Tom. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm trying to remember how I found out about your music. I think it was like somewhere on Spotify. Austin was the name of the song a long time ago. Austin. Yeah. I think Austin was the very first one you played. Yeah. I remember remember you made a TikTok of us playing you on the show, right? I did. Yeah. Um, I found out about you playing it and I listened to the radio and I I filmed it and that TikTok actually blew up, which was crazy. And like... (laughs) People were like, no way, like I heard you on the air. And then people would go stream the song. So in in a way, that kind of launch, launched that song for me. Well, I don't require any more than 10%, Laurel. Don't worry about that. You know, it's okay. I got you. Don't even worry about it. So you, <laughs> so you were, you were a, a pretty serious gymnast. How serious were you as a gymnast? Um, as serious as it gets. I had my eye on the Olympics. Um, I was really shooting for a scholarship um, in, in the States. And um, I was training anywhere from like 25 to 36 hours a week. I was homeschooled for a little while. Like gymnastics was was all I knew from the time I was five to 16. So it was pretty intense. So and your dad was a hockey coach in, and you were in Alberta. Is that the, the Flames or the Oilers or something like that? <laughs> the Medicine Hat Tigers. Yeah, I was actually in, uh, I was in Medicine Hat growing up. Um, but yeah, my, my dad was a hockey coach, so I had a very sports oriented family. Yeah. So what, what happened? Can I ask what happened to the gymnastics? Yeah, of course. Um, the sport, as you have, have heard before is very, very demanding on the body. And, um, and I was getting, getting injured constantly. And honestly, like it was a shoulder injury that, um, ended my gymnastics career. But by that point, like I was so mentally burned out from the sport that like the shoulder injury, I remember when the, um, the doctor was telling me like my options for surgery and it was like, it's going to get better, worse or stay the same. It's a pretty intense surgery. And I remember like in that moment, I was like, I think I'm done. And like both, like, what am I doing with my life? And also like the crazy amount of relief that I felt. And, and, um, it was just like one of those first times growing up that I really listened to my gut and, uh, looking back, like, I'm so proud of that decision. How, how hard was that decision? It was really difficult. I mean, it was everything that I, that I had known. Like I moved around so much growing up and every single place I moved, like that was the the thing that, that I knew it was gymnastics. I met so many amazing people. I planned my whole entire life around the sport. Um, so, so I think that I, I was shocked by my own decision. I like had said it out loud and it felt right. And then after that, it was like processing of like, how do I move forward? Who am I now? And that was difficult. And when did the music come in? So it was a little bit towards the end of my gymnastics career, actually. I found myself like constantly like, burning CDs and bringing them in for all the everyone else to listen to. Or like I'd like plug my iPod in. And and uh, so music was always something that like I liked, but I didn't know anyone 
in in music at all, especially Medicine Hat. And um, it wasn't honestly until like the middle of university, a friend of mine um, had shown me a couple of guitar chords. I was writing a lot at the time, just like poetry, journaling, getting my thoughts out. And I was really obsessed with with lyrics and and finding a song that like only I like felt like I related to. And so I was like, wouldn't it be cool to write songs, you know? And at the end of like my university, this idea spinning in my head and spinning in my head and I'm sitting in the back of the class and like, honestly with my headphones on, like listening to other songs and like writing my own lyrics to the melody of other songs. <laughs> and um, it wasn't until like a friend showed me a couple of guitar chords that I was like, wow. I think I could, I think I can write some, some stuff. And I, and I started there and, and honestly, I just like, couldn't stop. It felt therapeutic to me. It felt like a release. I never thought it was going to be something that I, that I actually pursued, but like, I couldn't stop writing. So that was the beginning of it. Are there things you learned from your background as an athlete? I'm thinking like maybe discipline. Are there things that, that, that came from your background as an athlete that helped, helped lead you to music that helped you with your music? path definitely um discipline is is for sure one of them um it's kind of funny but like anytime there's anything that's like stressful or a little bit like scary or i'm putting myself out of my comfort zone with music i think to a gymnastics competition and that feeling right before i'd like walk on an apparatus knowing that number one all eyes are going to be on me i could fall like this it was like a make or break moment right and there's so few gymnastics competitions in a year so they're so intense and i would compare anything that i'm doing honestly to that moment and i'm like oh i can do this this is absolutely i can do this like and and like it was like i did that as a, like a little 15 12 13 whatever like your old your old girl like i I can do this now. So like, that's a really, really big one to be honest. Yeah. Like the worst that can happen. I mean, this is sound cheesy, but like the worst that can happen is you break a string, not like a, a vertebrae or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like the worst that I can do is like, I can stumble on my words. I can like make a fool of myself and like can hit a wrong note, but like, I'm safe. And like, that's <laughs> such a crazy thing. That's such a crazy thing to think, but it's, it's been helpful. <laughs> I've never I've never heard anyone talk about the <laughs> physical safety of performance, but I do I do I, I get a kick out of that. So the new record's called Delayed Reaction. Um, I saw you called it an an emotional road trip. What does what does that mean? Definitely. So I started writing this record um, knowing that I was going to be um, taking a trip down to Los Angeles and um, packing up all of my things. And at the very end of like or at the very beginning and the end of all this, I like. I had a major breakup and I feel like this um, entire record is like processing that breakup and like losing myself and fighting myself and reflecting. Like, I think any major event not only causes you to reflect on like the event itself, but everything else that's ever happened in your whole entire life, you're like automatically entered into like sentimental nostalgic mode. And so I think when that happened, there's so much reflection on just like my life as a whole. And I think that this, this record, each stop or each song feels like a stop on this road trip and to the new destination. And what I think is funny is like, while I was writing this, I was like, all right, at the end of this, like, I'm going to know, I'm going to know who I am. Right. And, and the, the crazy and most eye-opening part for me is like, I got there and everything, like I thought I was processing and it honestly felt like I was running from it and it all hit me at once. 
it hit me like as soon as I got here all at the same time. And it, it was like, it, yeah, it was a delayed reaction. It sounds, so it sounds, it's, sounds it's hard. It's, that sounds like uh, overwhelming. No, it's definitely overwhelming. I mean, break breakups are hard. Um, moving your entire life to a new country is hard, even if it's just temporarily. Um, there's, there's so many changes that were happening. Um, it gave me a lot to write about, which was, was really, really freeing. And like the creative process and how this record was, was written, um, was one of the most enjoyable freeing experiences for me. I'm, I'm just really, really proud of the project and I'm super excited about it. Okay. So, so what stop on the emotional road trip is, um, easy way out. When, when you have a breakup, you reflect on your whole entire life. Right. So easy way out was actually like the reflection of a breakup that had happened um, like early on in my life. I was I was seeing someone for a while who um, who didn't I don't even think I can put it nicely was was very narcissistic and very manipulative. And I was young and and I and I fell into the trap. And so as an artist, it's really, really important to me for my music to have this sense of hope. Like I love talking about topics that are that are potentially difficult to talk about, but like either the production or lyrically or something in it needs to feel light. Mm. And that was so difficult to approach with with a topic like that. So easy easy way out, I would say, happens mid road trip. Um, when I think when I think ev- everything is good, and I'm like, I think I'm doing all right, and it's like, hey, remember that one time? Yeah, right. It's the part <laughs> of the road trip where, where you got where you got cheesies. And you have like a Dr. Pepper or like a, a gas station coffee. And you're like, I can do this. This is yeah. great. This is no problem. I'm still this new, new me. It's a new road trip, new me. And then you're like, oh, it's all new crashing life. in here now. Yeah, hit me all at once. I think it's nighttime too. It might be raining, to be honest. Okay, good. 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 So um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if you, might, if you might do us a favor and just introduce yourself and introduce uh, the, the song for us. How would you feel about doing that? Of course, yeah. Hello, I'm Laurel from Medicine Hat, Alberta, and this is my song, Easy Way Out. I'm terrified of sleeping alone, but I can't stay where you are. I don't remember what it's like here without you, but it's time I start. I don't want to, but I still care what you say. It was killing you. Mean something that they never meant, but I can't keep shrugging it off. I can't lose any more than the flaws. I wish I'd left before you look down every easy way out. Every easy way out. From Medicine Hat, Alberta, that is Laurel with her song Easy Way Out. Her debut album, Delayed Reaction, is out now. All right, that is it for the show today. Uh, The other episode we put up today, oh boy, is a big one. Uh, It's our conversation with Jada Pinkett Smith. If all you know about Jada Pinkett Smith is that her husband Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars... You are missing out on an amazing story. A person who has, has survived uh, uh, addiction. She was a drug dealer for a while. She was she was raised by two addicts. Like 
Through the skin of her teeth, she gets into a really prestigious performing arts school where she meets Tupac. And then anyway, just her life is incredible. But in case you're wondering, yes, we spent a lot of time talking about the slap. So go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.